Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Asband, here with my friend Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sota, daf Yud Aleph, page 11. Well, this is one of these lovely uh, times where, Anne, you and I always comment that there, as my father would say, a naceness to We're in the middle of Pesach as we're recording these. And today's daf has some wonderful agarata about uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the Pesach miracle and what exactly happened in Mitzrayim. Um, and it just sort of was lovely to learn this uh, on Pesach itself. Uh, we're really going to focus today more on Ahmed Bed, although we could have read this whole daf. Um, Ahmed Aleph really uh, starts with discussing Paro and what exactly happened. Uh, was he a new king? Uh, was he a king that had initially been good to the Jews and then decided not to be good by enacting some new decrees. Um, and I would just pay attention to, it's not the part that I'm going to read, but a lot of the psukim that are quoted here that they give Agarita to are the exact same psukim that we read in the Haggadah itself. Um, and so it's interesting to see uh, sort of the Gemara's take. Um, it's not all the things that we say necessarily in the Haggadah or their the Haggadah's interpretation of those exact psukim, but you will see when you read the stuff, uh, many of the psukim and the ideas here should be familiar to you from the P, from the Haggadah itself. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, Anne and I today are going to uh, move on to two really famous Gemaras here. Uh, I'm going to start with the first one, uh, which is this idea of the Nashim Tzitkaniyot. So Dresh, Dresh uh, Rav Avira. So Rav Avira gave the following Dresha. So this is a very, very famous Midrash that I'm sure uh, some of our learners are actually familiar with, which says the idea that it was basically in the merit of the righteous women in that generation of slaves that the Jewish people were redeemed from Mitzrayim. And this is really, you know, when we talk about that sometimes in Tanakh, it seems there aren't enough women or sort of a woman's perspective is lacking you know, this is a very, very bold statement, which is basically saying that it's because of the women um, that uh, that we merited uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim, that we merited to actually be redeemed. And so what does he mean by this? Uh, that when the woman would go to the river to draw out water, um, God would put many small fish into their pitchers, and then their pitchers would basically be full of half water, half fish. Um, and then they would come and place two pots on the fire. One was a pot of fish and one was a pot of hot water. And the idea is, is that the hot water was to wash their husband's hands right after they were working as slaves, and the fish was so that they could feed them. And then they would go and they would prepare this for their husbands and take it to the field. And they would bathe their husbands. And they would anoint them with oil. And they would feed them with the fish. Um, and they would uh, uh, give them to drink. And basically, this is a euphemism, uh, but they basically would uh, bond with them. But it was basically saying that they would have sex with them. You know? And so the idea here is, is that this is after the decree of, you know, that the baby boys were going to be 
killed that one would think, okay, so that would, you know, sort of uh, have people say like, all right, we shouldn't have children anymore. And it's exactly the opposite. The idea here being that it was specifically the Jewish woman who saw that they had to continue the Jewish nation. And so the way that they did this was is that they would essentially sort of seduce their husbands. Now, again, I think it's interesting to find this particular midrash in the Masachat of Sotah because we keep seeing, you know, we saw this with this, with, you know, when a few dapim ago that talked about Shimshon and uh, Delilah, that we're sort of getting other prototypes of women who maybe do actions similar to the Sotah, but here it is, it could be either for bad or it could be for something good. And so here, this is again for something good, right? That uh, these women do something that would be similar to a Sotah, right? There's an act of seduction, but here it's seduction to their husbands and it's seduction in a way that leads the con- to the continuation of the Jewish people. Um, and so they quote here a pasuk from Tehillim from chapter 68, verse 14, that says, Im tishkavun bein right? When you lie among the sheepfold, um, right? Bishar tishkachun ben tzvatayim, right? So the reward of lying among the sheepfold, zahu Yisrael libiziyat Mitzrayim, the Jewish people merited to have the plunder of Mitzrayim. Shanemar kanfei yona bakesev Avrotaha beer I can't say this word Harutz. So this is the second half of that same Pasuk that says the wings of the dove are covered with silver and her pinions with shimmers of gold. Right? So the idea is is that when you because they lie down together, which again is a euphemism in this that they're interpreting this Pasuk for having a sexual encounter, then they were merited to get silver and gold. And then these women would become pregnant. When it was time for them to give birth, they would go and give birth under an apple tree. And here we quote Shir Hashim, which many of us, uh, you know, we read over on Pesach. Right? That under the apple tree, I awaken to you. Um, and again, you know, this part of the Midrash, you know, some of you may have heard, it's a pretty famous um, Midrash, but the idea is, is that, you know, this was the continuation. Uh, it's, it's you know, then it goes on to say, the Gemara, So Hashem would send from the heavens an angel, basically, who would clean and prepare the newborns. Just as a midwife, uh, prepares um, the newborn. And here they quote a pasuk from Yechazkel that says, as for your birth on the day you were born, your navel was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. And it goes on to say in the pasuk, you weren't salted or swaddled, right? And this angel would gather two rounds of stones, okay? Um, and again, the idea of the two rounds of stones, one is of oil, one is of ash, is that in a way, this is supposed to replace like the two breasts. Right? Because now they quote a pasuk from Devarim that says, he would suckle from honey, uh, with honey uh, from a stone and from oil. So the idea is, is that, they weren't able to really take care of their babies and Hashem provided everything for their babies, similar to what he did to B'nai Yisrael 
actually in the Midbar as well. And once the Egyptians noticed them, in other words, they realized that there were still Jewish babies. And this part of the Midrash, I think, is super interesting. It's not one that gets quoted a lot. The earth, a miracle occurred from them, and the babies would be absorbed by the earth. Right? And then the Egyptians would bring oxen and they would plow the earth. Again, quoting a pasuk from Tehillim, chapter 129, verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. After the Egyptians would leave, the babies would emerge and grow like grass from the earth. I caused you to increase even as the growth of the fields. And Gordon, this is quoting a pasuk from Yechezkel. Um, and so part of what this Midrash needs to explain is, is like, how were any babies born at all? First of all, why would people choose to have babies? Because it was at risk of knowing if it was a boy, it would die. And so they said, okay, the woman made a choice still that it was important to have these children. And second, how would they raise them? How would they hide them? And so the Midrash tells us that there was basically a miracle that happened, that somehow... They were able to hide these children. Now, again, when you read a midrash like this, the question is, you know, do we really believe this is actually what happened, that the babies were buried in the ground and somehow grew and then grew like grass? Or is all this euphemistic language based on psukim, basically saying Hashem provided to them that they actually were able to be hidden and were able to be raised? And then the midrash goes on to say, once the babies were grow, they would come like flocks of sheep to their home. In other words, they would sort of grow outside in the fields, and then they would come home. This part actually sounds like a horror movie. The part about them, you know, uh, growing in the fields almost reminded me of like Cabbage Patch dolls. Um, this part sounds a little bit weird, right? And then they would sort of like come back to the homes, Shanat Mar, and here again, they quote a pasuk from Yechezkel, chapter 16, verse 7, adi'im which says you did increase and grow and you came up with excellent beauty, right? Don't read this as which means excellent beauty. Read this as many flocks. Right? And then when Hashem revealed himself at the Red Sea, right? When the splitting of the sea, so they recognized him. And that's why they said, Shanat Mar, and they quote this pasuk, which is part of Aziashir, right? Which is part of the the prayer of thanks, of thanks that they gave after the splitting of the Red Sea. Zet keliva anvehu. This is my God, and I will glorify Him. In other words, they already knew that this was their God because this was the God that they recognized of saving their children. Very, very beautiful and interesting midrash. Again, when you read these midrashim, it's always a question of: Are they meant to be taken literally? But pay attention to the beautiful use of psukim, how closely read these psukim are to read into the text of what type of miracles were actually done. And again, the purpose of this midrash is to explain, you know, why was anybody having children all together and that it was basically giving full credit to the women uh, for that. So I wonder, Yordina, if all of this discussion of fertility, you know, it's, it's suitable for us right now during Pesach. Yes, that's wonderful. But I wonder if it isn't kind of the antidote to the Sota woman or even her own 
um, the flip side of what we've been talking about. Not if she's a seductress and guilty, but if she's innocent and then she goes home and, you know, goes home to her husband and conceives a child and so on. And so perhaps that's why these Gemaras are here in Masachatzota as opposed to, I don't know, they could be in many places, I suppose, or, or any place for that matter. If we want to say that they're here for a reason, I'm wondering if that might be why. I want to go on. Um, further on, Ahmed Bet, we have, um, I'm going to say it's an exegetical read, right, interpretive read of the biblical text from Exodus, from Sefer Shemot. Um, and we see this is going to carry on for another couple of dapim, where basically we've got Midrash, um, Agadic Midrash, which is giving us the the interpretation, fleshing out what we have from the biblical biblical text. So we have from the very beginning. I want to talk here about the midwives. Dana, you talked about the righteous women. The midwives are also certainly considered to be the righteous women, um, and sometimes they're considered part of these nashim tzedkani, the righteous women themselves, and sometimes they're in a class on their own. So the king of Egypt spoke to the or said to the Hebrew midwives, and it's unclear whether these were midwives who were Jewish, right, or whether they were the the Egyptian midwives of the Hebrew people. Rav isha ubita So the question is, is this a mother and a daughter, or is this a mother and a daughter-in-law? And the question that, you know, we, we know from the Chumash, we know from the Torah, that their names are Shifra and Pua, but we're going to see momentarily that the Gemara likes to do what we've st- spoken about long ago, conservation of biblical personality, where the when we have names and important people who are new to us and they have new names and new personalities, we're going to connect them up with other possible people who we already know who are, in fact, important people. So here we go. Manda Amar Isha Ubita, the one who says that it's a woman and her daughter, so Yocheved Umiryam. So it's Yocheved Umiryam who here are called Chifren Pua. Umanda Amar Kalav and if you want to say that it's the mother and the daughter-in-law, Yocheved Elisheva, then it's Yocheved, still Yocheved, and Elisheva, who's the wife of Aaron. Aaron. Meaning, Shifra and Pua, in this particular interpretation, are names, like their midwife names, so to speak, and not separate people altogether. Tanya kemanda amar isha uvita. Tanya shifra zo yocheved. Velabeni krashma shifra. So the Gemara says, well, why was she called shifra? If her name is really yocheved, why would the Torah call her shifra? Shemishaperet et havalad. She would. It, it takes the word mishaperet, which means she would like prepare, right? She would prepare for the new baby to come, and therefore she got the name shifra from mishaperet. Tavarecher shifra. Or perhaps from the word pruervu, right, to be fruitful and multiply, but with the shin that says that she would help them be fruitful and multiply, we get this word, a play on words, really, for the word shifra, the name shifra. Pua, what about that? Where do we get this name? Zo Miriam, that's going to be Miriam. Velamini Krashma Pua, why was she called Pua Shaita? And because she would make this sound, pu'a, 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 whatever, some kind of comforting sound, which would be this po'a, to help the child as she's taking the child uh, from the womb. Or perhaps it's that she would speak, again, pu'a, it's the same kind of 
utterance, kind of a gentle, sighing utterance with Ruach HaKodesh, divine inspiration. That her own divine inspiration is what helped her know that her mother would, in the future, give birth to a child who would then come to save Israel, meaning Moshe Rabbeinu Moses. Excuse me. Um, the Gemara goes on with the next verse in the Torah. Meaning, he says to her, when you are there to deliver the babies from the from the Hebrew women, my avnaim. So it says specifically, right, when they're sitting on the stones. And this is a really interesting thing. I suggest you, I don't know, look, Google for birthing stones or something like that. So you can see the picture. It's really like a, a seat or a... I'm reminded of like those special back chairs where you kind of, you're kind of leaning on your knees, like lower down, and then you're, you're sitting, you don't really have a back to lean back on. Um, but the point is that this was a special uh, seat, really, to be able to facilitate delivery, the delivery of the child. I'm Rabbi Hanan, Siman Gadol Masar So the Rabbi Hanan says that Pyro gave them this great sign. He said to him, He says, at the time that a woman, you know, bends down or crouches down to give birth, her thighs will become as cold as stones. And that's how you'll know, meaning, and he's giving them this information, according to this Midrash, right? He's giving them this information so that they'll be able to know when the babies will come and therefore be able to, you know, dispose of them. These Mialdot, these midwives, do not do so. They save the babies. And they have said to Paro already, they've said to Pharaoh, no, they, they deliver without us. They deliver on their own. They deliver too quickly for us to know when they're going to give birth. And therefore, so this is what he's doing. He's giving them this assistance to know when it's happening. And there are those who say that there's another understanding of Ovnaim. So there's, uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah, there's a verse that, where he says, he went down to the pottery, uh, to the potter shop, and there he sits and works at the wheels. Meaning he would sit with one leg on the one side and one leg on the other side, and then that block or the potter's wheel in the middle. So too, you know, a woman giving birth would have one leg on the one side and one side on the other side, and the newborn will emerge in the middle. Um, Point being, of Naim is truly the birthing stool. And the question is, why is Baro, you know, what is his role here? He's trying to make sure that the babies are born so that the midwives can kill them. And we know that these midwives, these righteous women, really very much decline to do so. Um, and the Gemara here goes on to make this point about im ben hamiteroto, if it's a boy, you should kill it. And likewise, there's this, you know, this clue. He says, it's a boy baby if the baby is born with a face downward and a girl baby is born with her face upward. As far as I know, there's no scientific, uh, you know, relevance to this at all. Um, but the point is that Paro's trying to make sure that the midwives do his bidding. Except for that, as I say, the text in the Torah tells us otherwise. The midwives feared God, and they did not do as Paro said to them to do. 
Meaning, what did they do? Lahen mi baile. It shows that they spoke and spoke to them. Meaning, Paro wanted them to do these, to you know, get involved in some kind of sin, perhaps even with him, right? Some kind of sexual sin, and they were not, they did not get involved. But that, I feel like, I'm not really sure why the Gemara needs to go that far afield, because just killing the babies would have been a pretty big deal. They kept the babies alive, meaning the boy babies, to not low dayen shaloch hamitoton mazon. Not only did they not kill them, but they actually went so far as to help them live. They went to make sure that they would stay alive. And the Gemara goes on here to, to explain, as I said, that the midwives had to provide some kind of excuse to borrow to say, well, the, you know, we didn't get there in time. The the Hebrew women are considered chayot. They were, I don't know, lively, or they delivered like animals, meaning that's not an insult in this case or something like that. It means that they were able to deliver on their own and they didn't need the midwives. It doesn't mean the midwives weren't necessarily there, right? This is all their defense of these women to Paro to explain that for all that there was this decree against these boy babies, the midwives themselves uh, made sure to not be part of that decree against them, and in fact to keep them alive, to do everything they could to facilitate life. And that's really part of these righteous women in whose merit B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, were redeemed from Israel, uh, from Egypt, because because that's the very beginning also of the rebellion against Paro's decree, against his decree, against them. His decree got worse, right? And this is the very beginning of the people saying, no, we're not going to do this. And it was sometime later, right? If we say that Shifra is in fact Yocheved and Pua is Miriam and Moshe hasn't been born yet, it's still sometime later that the people really cry out to God for salvation. But this is the very beginning of the the breaking of the hold, I guess, that Paro had over his slave population because they begin to say, like, no, we're not going to tolerate the killing of our boy babies and we're going to cry out to God. And lo and behold, God does bring a redeemer, does bring a savior. savior. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.